Amen. <laughs> Hang on a sec. Just uh, have a little chat to you, personate you quickly. We'll find out. Let me, let me pray about that for a few minutes before I, before I agree. Um, keep chatting amongst yourselves for a second. Sorry, sorry, apologies, 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 apologies. Steve, can you, um, can you chuck the first slide up? That'd be great, thank you. Hi, folks, uh, my name is Andy, how are you? Are you all right? Give your attention to this slide while I'm just getting myself ready here. Uh, uh, how did it feel? How did it feel? Was there confusion or just boredom? Or actually, we preferred it while you weren't talking, Andy. That was, could you go back to that, those two minutes? I thought I, thought I, would, I, only, I only left you for two, exactly two minutes. And I thought it would be a great way to sort of get ourselves into the experience of what it might have felt for Mary and Martha to be waiting for like two days. An incredible experience, as you've just heard read. Can you imagine what that must have felt like when you had this intimate relationship with Jesus? Yet, he just didn't show up. And can you identify with that experience? In something of the questioning and confusion and the tension of the last two minutes, can you identify with some of that and think, there are moments in my life when I've cried out and gone, God, can you help out with this? And what you've heard is silence. It's a pretty painful thought. And all through this passage, it's pretty clear that Jesus is intentionally making sure that people focus on the idea of death. But that's not something that we enjoy focusing on in this day and age. You know, in our present culture, we almost intentionally suppress the whole idea of death. Thankfully, in our culture, we don't see bodies on the streets. Sadly, in some parts of the world, you do. Probably most of us have never actually ever seen anyone die. Probably most of us have never actually seen a dead body. And this might be hard to talk about for some folks in the room who have recently experienced, you know, somebody they know dying, somebody they know, somebody they love. But death is a grim fact of life, ironically. 
you know, in 100 years' time, none of us in this room will probably be alive. But it seems that Jesus wants, in fact, he almost sets it up. He almost stage manages the reality so that folks have to confront the reality of the pain of what sickness and what death is. We think about that delay. We think about how sometimes we are frustrated that God doesn't move. Come on, we want you now. We want you to change things now. Help me now. And we fail to realize that God cares far more about what he's doing in us than what necessarily we think we need. If you're anything like me, you've often grown up praying to God, believing he's more like Santa. You know, I want this thing and I'm making a list for you and I want these things and I expect them on Christmas Day. And we live in an age where we can get anything we want. We can find out any fact we want by just getting our phone out and looking. We can get things instantly and we want that sort of instant response from God. And so it's fascinating to look at this passage in first century Palestine and realize part of the problem is our 21st century Western understanding because we read about Mary and Martha sending Jesus a message, but they didn't send him a WhatsApp. They, they quite simply didn't. That's not what they sent him. They had to send a messenger. The messenger went to Jesus and Jesus was where John had been baptizing, which is like two days walk away from where they are in Bethany. So if you actually think about it, Lazarus starts to get sick, two days traveling for the messenger. Jesus hears the news, goes, ah, right, we're not doing anything. We're gonna hang around here for two days more. Another two days, messenger goes back two days. Then during those two days, and then Jesus takes two days to get from there to there. And how many days has Lazarus been in the tomb when Jesus arrives back? So there's a strong possibility that actually Lazarus was already dead when Jesus heard the news. So this kind of strange unkindness that you can potentially pick up from the reading might not actually be true. It's that Jesus just knows that this is a fact of life. This has happened. And we are going to go through a process now where you're going to understand a little bit more about death. But gloriously, you're going to understand a little bit more about life as well. And we live in an age where we just don't even want to talk about death. We don't want to acknowledge its reality. We don't want to acknowledge the reality of sin and the reality of evil in our world. And Jesus, all through this chapter, is saying, this is a matter of life and death. You look at the state of your world. You look at everything going on. I'm not here to tell you that everything's going to be all right. I'm here to tell you it's far worse than you think it is. But there is incredibly good news. And this whole idea of talking about death has been set up by what happens in the previous chapter. As we've been looking through John for these last few weeks, we've seen time and time again that Jesus makes a claim about himself. You know, I am the light of the world. And in the next chapter, he proves it because somebody's sight is restored. But what happens in chapter 10 before this story is that he's, he's accused, he's been stoned for saying that he's the son of God. And in the next chapter, he proves it. He said, prove it, and he did. It's an incredible passage of scripture. And something about tonight, I feel God wants to allow us in to what he was feeling, what he was thinking, what Jesus is going through, and what Mary and Martha are going through, and a fantastic way to get our heads and our emotions, not just our heads, but our hearts further inside this, 
is to hear my wife do an amazing job of identifying very strongly and being one of the characters. So if we can kick off that video now, that would be great. Oh, I should tell you that while you're looking at that. Um, the thing I remember oh, most about that day is just this cold heaviness in my stomach. The unbearable knowing that something so unthinkable and awful has happened, that something precious has been snatched away forever. You never forget that feeling. My little brother Lazarus got sick really quickly. One day he was fine and the next day he was weak and tired. He could hardly get out of bed. We thought it would pass. My sister Martha and I would take it in turns, sitting with him, praying, waiting. But it just got worse. And then one morning he was finding it hard to breathe. It was that day that I said to Martha we should send for the rabbi. Neither of us had mentioned him until then. We knew that it wasn't so safe for him to be in the village. But we suddenly realised how powerless we felt. We just needed him. We needed him to be there. It's funny, you never think you'll be the one asking for healing. Maybe that's just me, maybe that's just my pride. I know the rabbi heals, I've seen it. And I've heard stories about other healings. But I never imagined that I'd be the one asking, that it would be us who needed a miracle. We sent word to the rabbi. The one that you love is sick. And we waited. And nothing. He didn't come. I'd seen him go to others, people he didn't knew, strangers. He'd been eating at our house and someone had come asking for his help and you could see that he was moved and he'd gone. He left to help them. And now his friends, his friends who he loved had asked him for help and nothing. The day after we sent for him, my brother died. He was 26. My baby brother. And not a word from the rabbi or his disciples. We heard nothing. They arrived four days later. Four days. Lazarus was already in the tomb. We heard that they were coming and Martha went out to meet them. I didn't go. I was so full of anger. I let Martha go and I just stayed at home. I was so angry with the rabbi and I didn't know how to be angry with him. And then Martha came back. She said the rabbi was asking for me. And so I got up and I went. 
There was no way to go quietly in that house because it was full of people mourning. But I just felt driven forward suddenly by all the anger inside of me. And I walked up to him and I just blurted it out. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then I just wept. I fell down on the ground, sobbing. It was some minutes before I looked up and I realised that I wasn't on my own. That the rabbi was kneeling in the dust next to me, crying. Listening to those words, maybe you did too. Often when somebody tells a story of their pain, it, it triggers situations and things that we know in our lives that have been painful and moments of loss. And how do we cope with that delay? How do we cope with those moments of not knowing exactly what's going on? How do we cope with those moments when we are crying out and going, why are you not here, God? Why are you not present? Because we want the presence of a comforter, but we also want the action of somebody to change the situation. And we struggle a bit when the second thing doesn't happen, if you're anything like me. It's not that just Jesus was late or distracted. It seems like it was intentional. His ways are not our ways. And sometimes how situations pan out for us are just, just awful. Sometimes there's no way of getting around describing a situation that's just really bad. But I think I spent a lot of time as a younger Christian in my school days and my student days trying to, thinking that my job was to put a silver lining on everything to make everybody feel better. And Jesus seems to be coming here and saying, no, it's actually, it's not what you think. It's a lot worse than you think. <laughs> but there's another part of the story. I am the resurrection and the life. But the death thing has to happen. It's incredible. This story is a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus just a little while later on the cross. It's a fascinating foreshadowing. You can see Mary, who is crying out to him here, is the one who also with her hair anointed his hands and feet. And Jesus at that point said that she's anointing me for burial. It's a clear foreshadowing of what's about to take place. But Jesus is saying, this is serious. What you're going through in this life is serious. Death needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be dealt with. And it's wonderful to think about the resurrection and the new creation. But we don't get there without dealing with some of this darkness. And if you're anything like me, you want to get to the good stuff without having to work through the not-so-good stuff. Jesus has almost stage-managed and set up a situation where people have to stare death in the face, both as individuals and as a community. 
it's almost as if he's reminding us that actually there's a real person in charge. When we get frustrated that when we pray a prayer or we ask a question and we feel like we don't get a response, we, it's almost a reminder that this is a person, that our faith is not a flow chart. I put this in and I'll get this out. And if I pray in this way, I'll get it out. But oh, if I really pray this way, but if you pray with faith, then you'll get this. And it would appear our instructions don't necessarily make it work. If you do this, this happens. When you pray it this way, this happens. Sometimes we'd rather just have instructions that we can stick to rather than uh, you know, a plan that gives us security. But life just isn't like that. And God's calling us into a relationship, not into a flow chart. It's very easy to grab our dogma. So you could look at this passage and you can go, ah, you see, God has power to raise people from the dead if only we have faith. It's about faith. It's about asking, oh, oh, hang on. Uh, they've asked him and he hasn't turned up. Hmm. So that sort of piece of dogma doesn't work apparently. Or dogma too. Ah, you see, Jesus is not about taking us around the valley of the shadow of death. He wants to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He wants to be with us in the pain. See how he wept with them. That's what he wants to do. Oh, hang on. He's raised them from the dead. And we want our certainties of like, oh, if we press this button, then this will happen. And it would appear that Jesus is here to say, well, that's, that's not I have wider, bigger, better plans. And sometimes it's really important for you to face some of the pain. David knew this. All through the Psalms, we see that David grappled with the idea of God, not just not turning up, not helping him out, but not turning up just at the moment he needed him most. He complained vociferously. Jesus quoted David on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would appear this kind of language of lament is not out of bounds for someone who believes in God. David didn't let God off the hook. You know, God called David a man after his own heart. And I wonder whether God called David a man after his heart because he actually went after him. <laughs> David really viscerally went after him. How long, God? How long? Why are you asleep? Why are you ignoring me? You know, it wasn't polite. Yet in our Britishness, we're often so polite with God, aren't we? Oh, he must know best. It's okay. Well, maybe he's actually calling us like he stage managed this situation. Maybe he's calling us into real, visceral, sometimes angry, sometimes disappointed, sometimes tearful interaction with him. He's validating those emotions in this very story. If you look at how Jesus is described as it was read, he was deeply troubled. That's probably a, of a soft translation of it. It's the word, the Greek word is embromasai, which actually means snorting like a horse in anger. That's what it means. Jesus was snorting like a horse in anger as he came upon this situation, and as he, he was appalled by what sin and death have done. He's appalled. This is not just all right. It's not just fine. Things in this world right now, as, as Joanna led us so beautifully in those prayers, things are not all right. Jesus comes and says, do you know what? I'm not here to cheer you up and say, actually, it's not that bad. It's actually far worse than you think. But there is resurrection on the other side. And incredibly, we're called to be part of that bringing 
demonstrating that new creation, that new life. That's the call. It's the most incredible, beautiful thing. But unless we're feeling it in our guts, unless we're seeing the pain, and unless we're able to articulate it and feel able to cry out as Mary and Martha did, some of us might feel more like Martha, who in a cerebral, organized way said, oh yeah, no, I understand that Lazarus will, will, will rise again. He'll rise again at the last day. And at that point, Jesus has to say, well, no, no, do, do you get it? I am the resurrection and the life. Like here, hello, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not, it's not just happening in the future sometimes. It's, it's the now. And we sometimes struggle with that now and not yet of the kingdom, don't we? We understand that you know, we're going to have a, a perfect future in the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation, but we might struggle to believe that right now, miracles can happen. Things that demonstrate that resurrection. You know, Jesus was about to be resurrected, bodily resurrected. And it wasn't just floating off like a, like a disembodied soul up to heaven. The tomb was empty. There were no atoms or molecules left in the tomb. It wasn't like Jesus' body, his old body was there and his soul floated off. The tomb was empty. So Jesus' new body that he appeared with to the disciples and to other folks it was made of the same atoms and molecules because there weren't any left in the tomb. So his body was transformed. The resurrection was a bodily resurrection. And yes, he looked slightly different. He kind of seemed to appear and disappear. And folks didn't always recognize him after he, was, after he was raised. But he was being transformed. It was the same stuff that was transformed. And I'd similarly promised that we will be transformed in that way and all of creation will be transformed in that way. This is an incredible story, but it doesn't happen without the death bit. And it doesn't happen without the crying. Mary crying for Jesus, his mother crying for him. Mary and Martha both in tears at the death of their brother. So Mary, Martha takes the more cerebral route, whereas Mary, as you heard, comes out and she is just wailing and crying. And the crying that's described here would have been like wild wailing. That was the sort of crying that would have been happening, not just somebody sort of whimpering in the corner. This would have been demonstrative in the street, public mourning going on. This is not small emotion. And Jesus meets it and responds to it. And he is similarly in tears, but he is similarly angry. And sometimes we try to sanitize Jesus and sometimes we try to sanitize our faith. And when somebody asks us how we're doing, we just say, oh, we're fine. It's all right. It's fine. Again, it's a painfully British thing to be just trying to keep everything sort of going like this, when actually there is great joy to be had and there is great pain to be engaged with. Yet often we just want to keep it somewhere in the middle, keep comfortable. How can we engage with the reality of the pain of our world? How might we get angry at the fact that big tech companies are using algorithms to profit off the anxiety of our teenagers? How do we get angry about the fact that so many lies are being told in the public realm, both in America and Britain, about politics? How do we get angry about the fact that so many people are addicted? How do we get angry about what has just taken place over in Syria and Turkey? How do we get angry about what's going on in Ukraine? 
This deserves anger, yet we are so mild-mannered and calm so much of the time. Do we need to feel and hear what's going on in this passage a little bit more and realize the sort of full life that Jesus is calling us to? This is not about being appropriate. What happened was deeply inappropriate. Somebody came back from the dead. That's pretty mad. We spend so much of our time trying to make people believe that, hey, listen, Christians, we're not wacky. We really are. People come back from the dead. You know, Jesus did not say there will be revival in the world. There will be revival in the UK when people finally realize that Christianity is cool. You know, we spent all this time being spin doctors for the kingdom. Trying to put on this face that is like, oh, yeah, no, it's cool. We're cool. He's maybe calling us tonight to cry. Might tonight be an opportunity for you to come down the front here with some friends, with a Mary and a Martha, you might say, and cry out for your Lazarus, for that person who maybe doesn't know Jesus yet, for that situation in your family where there's just a horrendous illness, for a young person who you know is really struggling. Maybe tonight this is a space to let some of those emotions fly. Because if we don't create a space, especially for our young people to express their anger, doubt, disappointment, and frustration and rage in this space, in this safe space, to a God who can take it, believe me, they will find other places to articulate it in a way that will make us so happy. He's big enough to take it. Psalm 142 says, to you I tell my trouble. To you, I cry aloud. To you, I call out my complaint. And that was a psalm I prayed an awful lot in the last couple of years. Some of you might know that my daughter, Jubilee, on the very first day of lockdown, um, we were walking along a, a little road, and my leg caught a bramble bush. And the bramble just flicked forward with my leg and then flicked back. And I hadn't realized how close she was behind me. And, um, and the, a thorn from the bramble went straight into her left eye and punctured her lens. And, and um, she had to have surgery to save her eye that weekend at the height of COVID going mad in Luton at that point. And uh, she needed further surgery. She said four surgeries now, bless her. And uh, she had to have an artificial lens put in that eye. But my friend, um, Joanne, who's a, a, an A&E consultant, she said, look, we see we see two or three bramble injuries every week in various ways, but in all my 20 years working, I've never seen as crazy an injury as this. It is like end of spectrum, and it's like one in a million chance for the bramble to go straight through the pupil to actually pierce her lens. And um, I was crying out to God. I said, God, I don't get this. This is mad. This is mad. We've already had quite a lot of medical challenges in the family. And, um, and this was just like, uh, you know, just at the start of lockdown, just go like this, this what? <laughs> what? Like, seriously? And I cried out, and I shouted a lot at God, and I was angry, and I was saying, like, I don't get this. But there was something incredibly profound of being able to articulate 
that anger and that questioning and that frustration and that sense of delay of things not getting changed to God vertically. And unbelievably, he's big enough to take it. And I genuinely believe that the more that we do throw that anger, frustration, disappointment at him, we're not always angry at him. Sometimes we're angry at what Satan has done to the world. But when you throw that anger upwards vertically, my goodness, it means you're throwing less of it horizontally at your friends and family. <laughs> because when you've got that angst going on, it will fly out. It will explode out of your pores at some point. Usually at an unpredictable moment, usually leading to the smashing of some sort of inanimate object. But God has given us this incredible outlet valve, which is intercession, which is crying out, which is mental health, which is, which is crying out for the kingdom to come. Yet so often we just suppress it and repress it because actually we'd rather just have a quiet life. This was radical for people to realize that God had emotion. Previously, the Greeks had this word apatheia that described God. It was a word they used to describe God. The Greeks described God apatheia. It's the same root that we get the word apathy from, that God was in motion. They believed God was emotionless. And along came this embromastai, another Greek word, snorting like a horse, angry God, not happy with the state of things and making it clear that that was the case. Are you happy with the state of things? Because if you're not, this is a chance tonight for yourself, for the people around you, for your world to come forward and just maybe have a cry, maybe have a shout, maybe have a pray, but do it with some friends here at the front who will be with you. And there's no guarantee that the things we cry out about will get fixed tonight. It might take two minutes, it might get fixed, or it might take two days. But God is here with his beautiful, angry, tearful presence. And believe me, he is the resurrection and the life. That perfect future is coming. And it's non-negotiable. And it's one of the reasons that tears make sense, that anger makes sense. If that stuff, if there was no perfect future, and if we didn't somehow, somewhere in our DNA, know that that perfect future was coming, it wouldn't make any sense to cry about things that go wrong. It wouldn't make any sense to cry about that sickness, that illness, about that friendship that's come apart. It wouldn't make any sense to cry. But we know that it's not how things will. That's not how things should be now. So the band are going to come up. Would you come and join us at the front? Would the ministry team come up and would you come and join us? Would you come and pray? Would you come meet your Mary and Martha? Maybe come with your Mary and Martha and come and pray for your Lazarus and cry out, not because there's a guarantee, but because God is here and he wants to hear the truth of who we are and he wants to hear the truth of what we're struggling with and what we're angry about, what we're loving. Just come, just come.